0: Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be reading from verse 2. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angel's. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of the things teach you that if a man has long hair, it it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of
1: God. Today, um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, we've called it body build, um, and it starts with this passage, chapter 11, where Paul Addresses the church at Corinth um, about the issue of men and women in church. I was greatly helped by JP this week. So if you're angry with anybody, it needs to be with me because everything, that, everything that's helpful and good will come from my time with JP and I own the rest. But I'm grateful to God for JP and his gifts. We need to spend quite a bit of time as we start this series in context. And um, I've got three points, as I usually do, but um, really the first point uh, is context. And there are four contexts that will help us to understand this passage, which I just want to run through with you. There's an historical context, a biblical context, a linguistic context, and a cultural context. Is that okay? Stay with me. Historical, biblical, linguistic, and cultural. So, first of all, historical context. The backdrop to 1 Corinthians is Acts chapter 18, which you can go and read on your own time. We're told there that Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth preaching and planting the church that he now writes to. Corinth was second in the Roman Empire only to Rome in importance. It was a really important city. It was a port city. In fact, it had two ports that were very important economically to the region. And Corinth functionally was really the capital of Greece. It was an impressive city. It was a new city. For in 146 BC it had been destroyed. And by 44 AD it had been rebuilt. So it was less than a century old when Paul was there. Lots of immigrants, lots of buzz, lots of commerce. It was an exciting place to be. At the cutting edge of culture uh, and art and in the intelligentsia as well, there are lots of issues in the Corinthian letters: economic status, gender, marriage, hairstyles, ethics, households, slavery, patronage, temples, etc etc. Paul actually wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Uh, Two of them have been lost, and we don't have access to them. What we actually have in our Bibles is not 1 and 2 Corinthians, but it's 2 and 4 Corinthians. 1 and 3 Corinthians has been lost. Um, So that's just a little bit of history. And then biblical context, secondly. This letter is remedial. For the church at Corinth. There's a lot of straightening out that Paul needs to do with them. He's writing to address disorder in the gathered church meetings at Corinth. Uh, In chapters 8 to 10, for example, Paul urges them not to be involved in or let their meetings resemble pagan worship, which was rampant and rife all around them. Look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 7, which will be on the screen. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The fact that he has to write to them about idolatry shows you that the, the paganism was never far away from their Christian meetings. He wants the gatherings of the church in Corinth to be distinctive from the world. He wants these new Christians to be Christian and not to be to bring any paganism paganism of the Greco-Roman world into their gatherings with them. The Christian church is to be different to the world. He's worried about those who are looking at the Christian church. He's worried about those who are not yet believers. Perhaps some are here this morning. Um, He calls them the inquirers in chapter 14, the overhearers um, who come in because they're interested and they're not sure what it's all about. And so, he wants the Christian church to be careful about the way in which it is ordered and structured. Let me show you the concern of Paul. He has a vision that the church gathered uh, is a community that is loving and attractive to the watching world. So, let me show you. just run through two or three verses show, to show you his concern. Chapter 8, verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Can you see his concern there? Look at chapter 9 and verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I will do anything for the gospel. Chapter 10 and verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You can see that he's got a concern running through these chapters, that the church is a community that is distinct, that is moral, that is other-person-centered, that is safe and abuse-free and beautiful and attractive to the watching world, marked by respect and order and love. Uh, The great, um, well-known chapter 13 is a chapter on love. We'll come to that in a few weeks' time. A community that draws the watching world rather than repels it. The distinctiveness of the Christian community is that it exists not for the sake of individual freedoms, which our generation loves so much, but actually for the relational responsibility that we have to one another and to others. And this is seen, you know, in the the second half of chapter 11, which we're going to look at next week. He writes about the abuse of the poor at the Lord's table. In chapters 12 to 14, he writes about the abuse of gifts and tongues in the assembly, in the gathered church. And today, he's worried about the marriage relationship. He's concerned about how husbands and wives participate in the assembly, how they relate to one another and how that is perceived by those who are visiting or who are watching. Biblical context. Now, linguistic context. Let me just tell you this about the Greek language. In the Greek language, there is a word for girl. There is a word for a betrothed girl. There's a word for widow, there's a word for woman, but there is no word for wife in the Greek. Uh, There's no word for husband, the word is man. And so you've got to work out whether he's talking about a wife and a husband from the context in which we find ourselves. How do we know then that this passage has married men and women in mind, husbands and wives? You've got to look at the context to make that call. And in this passage, husbands and wives are clearly being addressed because of the mention of the word veil or covering in verse 6, 7, and 15. That would automatically signify to the Corinthians that the females under discussion in this passage were married. The males under discussion in this passage were married. So husbands and wives are in view. I'm I'm sorry to say that the NIV has not actually helped us with this in their translation. The ESV has translated it in a more uh, helpful way. For example, verse 3, I've put the ESV translation of verse 3 on the screen. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's very important, That because otherwise you might mistake the limits of this passage. You might think that what this passage is saying, if it said the head of a woman is the man, you might think that every woman in the local church is required to submit to every man in the local church. And that is not what it's saying. It's talking about a married couple and the order of that relationship. So it's important for us to understand that linguistically. Here's the cultural context before we begin the sermon. <laughs> um, First of all, men. Um, During pagan religious ceremonies in Corinth, (coughs) Roman uh, men with high social status used to pull their togas over their heads when they led in the prayers to the gods and in the sacrifices to the gods. So, Paul commands Christian men not to cover their heads during their times of corporate worship like the socially elite pagans did in their times of corporate worship. Can you see how immediately that brings light into the passage for us, just knowing that cultural context? So there was a pagan practice of men covering their heads at worship. Paul says, you are to be different when Christians gather, men are not to behave like pagan priests. you to behave like Christian men. Don't let your Christian worship look like pagan worship. It needs to be distinctive. Does that make sense? Very, very helpful that. Let's think about women, the cultural background here. A woman covering her head socially indicated that she was married. For the, f- It's not... It's not the hajib, by the way, it's a veil over her head like that. It doesn't cover her face. For the first century woman, the most obvious outward sign of marriage was the wearing of the veil. A thin headscarf symbolized a married woman's modesty and chastity and submission to her husband. It was one way in which a wife honored her husband in public. I think that's what verse 10 means. Can we have verse 10 on the screen um, because it it can't. this verse has been weaponized, I'm afraid, by abusive men and we need to rescue that back from abuse. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. We'll talk about what the heck because of the angels means in a moment. But just the first part of that verse, a woman ought to have authority over her own head, is not a reference to her subordination under her husband. It is a reference to a signifier that she is a married woman, a signifier of her status. So the veil over her head is, it actually acts as a sign that she is a married woman. It has to do with her status in society. Um, I suppose if Paul was writing today, he would have said something like this. The Christian wife is obliged to come to church with her wedding ring on. That would be the equivalent, I think, in our day and age. Now, why is is he concerned about this? What has happened culturally in the background to make him write that in the first place? And the answer is that historians tell us that a new kind of wife was emerging culturally at this time in the Roman world. Um, in the pagan Greco-Roman culture. She was a, a woman who rebelled against the cultural norms of the Roman Empire, which said that husbands are allowed to be promiscuous, but wives are not. And so the husbands in the Roman Empire were notoriously promiscuous, and the wives had to be chaste. But at this time that Paul is writing, a new wife arose in the culture who threw off that old uh, control over her from Greco-Roman culture. These new wives were saying, if our husbands have the right to fool around, then so do we. And there's historical record that shows that it wasn't uncommon for these new wives, as they are called, to be quite aggressive in pursuing younger men, men younger than their husbands, for sex just like their husbands pursued women younger than their wives for sex. One way in which such women, new wives, would flaunt that freedom was by removing their veils. And it would be, I guess, the equivalent of removing your wedding ring to make you look available. Um, And to do this at church, Paul says, is is to suggest immorality, and so you're not to do it. So the Christian wife should not deliberately remove her veil while praying or prophesying during a time of corporate worship because that would identify her with the new wives, these promiscuous women. In fact, within 1 Corinthians, there is an example of this, and it's in chapter 5. We won't go there now, but in chapter 5, Paul has to address a very... Shocking sin in the church, and that is that a stepmother is having sexual relations with her stepson, an older woman um, pursuing a younger man for sex. It's an example of the paganism that had crept from the surrounding culture into the church that Paul has to address. This is helpful for understanding the passage, don't you think? It does bring light to shine on the passage. And so Paul is saying, I don't want anything to happen at church that symbolizes the rejection of God's order and structure for anything but here for married life. Um, It helps us with verse, look at chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved, um, verse 6, For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. It's quite a provo- provocative statement to make. And it also has been weaponized as another example of Paul, this, m- Paul's misogyny against women. But actually, an adulterous wife in that society would have her head shorn... Uh, as a punishment that would publicly humiliate her. Paul is saying that the wives at church who remove their veils when praying or prophesying could be mistaken as one of the new promiscuous women. And so it is unbecoming. Keep paganism out of the church. Okay? So the men are to keep paganism out of the church by not looking like pagan priests covering their heads that women are to keep paganism out of the church by not looking like the new wives in Greco-Roman culture. And so Paul is concerned for the relationships in church between husbands and wives, for it is a key way to show the distinction between the Christian community and the pagan community. And so Paul makes his argument with three points. That was the introduction. Three points. I'll be much quicker, I think, as we go through this. Paul wants order because of headship. Look at verse 3 to 6. I want you to realize that the head of of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. The head of Christ is God. What Paul reminds them and us of is the concept of headship in the Bible. There is a sequence of authority in God's created order. And when that sequence is observed, order comes, and honor flows upward. You know, you could think of a a different example, which is not in Paul's mind here, but order between parents and children, for example. When children um, recognize that their parents are their head, then that leads to order and honor in in a family. And so it is in a Christian community that's gathered between husbands and wives. The Greek word head uh, has been debated. It could mean two different things. It could mean source, as in the headwaters of a river, or it could mean order. And I think this passage teaches both, actually. You can see this in verse 8. Man was made, sorry, woman was made from man. Source. Literally, the woman, remember, was taken out of his ribcage. Remember, he was made with the scrapings from behind the door. Dust. Just to humble the men in the room. But she wasn't made from dust. She was made from man. And so, literally, he is her source. She comes from him. But also she, in verse 9, woman was made for man. Man. Not just from man. So he is both her source and it also gives you order. And so the fact of headship. And what uh, Paul uh, establishes here really in verse 3 is that everybody is under headship, even Christ. We can't get around this. And nor, by the way, according to verse 16, should we be contentious about this. Because there is no other practice in any of the other churches, Paul says in verse 16. Headship God has made the world like that, and that's the way it is. Marriage works best when the husband is the head of the wife. Now that, in our egalitarian world and culture, is unforgivable, archaic, and passé. And another example of misogynistic New Testament ethics. For hierarchy in our culture is immediately assumed to indicate inequality and power play. That's how we think about headship in our world. We can't separate uh, discussions of hierarchy from discussions of inequality. But the Bible does. The Bible separates it from us. And it's a very sad thing to me that um, this passage has been weaponized against women. Uh, Some of the worst abuse that I have seen in my job as a pastor in marriage has been spiritual abuse. It seems to be worse than anything else, where the words of God have been weaponized against women. And it's a dreadful thing, an abuse of the Bible as well as of the woman. But when you see it in the context of the Trinity, headship is a very beautiful thing. It has nothing to do with the subjugation of women. Christ's head is God. Even Christ is under headship. Is that because Christ is not equal to God the Father? Of course not. God the Father and God the Son are perfectly equal. And so headship has got nothing to do with equality. It's not qualitative or, as theologians say, ontological. It is actually to do with function and order. It is quantitative, not qualitative. It's economic, as theologians refer to it. It has to do with differentiation. And differentiation is not the same thing as discrimination. And that's really important. When Paul says the head of a wife is her husband, he's not making a statement about her worth or her value or her equality. He's talking about order and function. And So, we mustn't play our culture's game of seeing no distinction or differentiation between men and women. The church is not to be unisex or androgynous. When you flatten out the genders to being only the same, you do harm. You damage both genders. Now, the man For the man to cover his head is shameful towards his head, Christ. That is because the man is appearing before Christ in a manner resembling the pagan priests. That is dishonoring to his head. The wife to uncover her head is dishonoring towards her husband because it resembles the new woman of Corinth. And so the fact of headship, but the nature of headship uh, is not actually spoken about in this passage. If you want to look at the nature of headship, you need to go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, where Paul unpacks what he means by headship in marriage. But we can say something about it if Christ is the model of headship to husbands. Then that means that husbands are the chief servants in the home. They're not the chiefs. They are the chief servants because that is how Jesus demonstrated his headship to us, holding nothing back, including his life. Husbands, I'm always rebuked by that. I'm, my wife is unwell this morning. She wanted me to assure you that she's not absent because of the nature of the passage that I'm preaching. She is actually with us on Zoom. But um, whenever, I always feel when I speak about this that I need to go home and apologize to her because I fail to be the the chief servant at home. But that is the ideal, for that is how Christ has treated us. He's held nothing back from us. And so the nature, let's remember the nature of headship is servanthood, not demanding your rights, being served. That's a pagan understanding of it. So, order because of headship. Now, order because of image. And we'll see this in verse 7. Now, as his second paragraph. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Display right order in the gathered church because of headship, Display right order in the gathered church because of the image of God. That's the second thing that Paul says. Paul is here obviously referring to the Genesis account of creation and the creation of men and women. The high point of God's creation is the creation of beings unlike anything else that he had created hitherto. Their uniqueness is seen in that they were made in his image. And so the well-known verse from Genesis 1 and verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Notice that Paul in Corinthians is very careful not to say that women are made in man's image. It's not what he says. Obviously, women are also made in God's image, for the image of God is both male and female. What he does say, though, is he says that woman is the glory of man, man is the glory of God. What does he mean by glory? And that's the second subheading under this point. What does he mean when he says that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man? I think that he is referring to the fact that the existence of the one... Brings glory to the other. The existence of man brings glory to God. The existence of the woman brings glory to the man. How is the woman the man's glory? Um, it's because he is the source of her life, he is the raw material that God used as he created her from the man. Again, I need to be very, very careful. To, to make sure that nobody thinks that this is an indication of her subordination to the man. Um, it's just simply the order of events. She is his glory because she completes him. By himself he is incomplete. It's the one not good thing in the Garden of Eden. When God looks at the man, he says, it is not good that the man is alone. I will create a helper suitable for him. By himself he's incomplete. It's not that she is subordinate to him. It is that she is necessary for him. And so in that sense, it is the fulfillment of relationship. That's what it means that she is his glory. Here is a quote um, to help me with this by Gordon Fee, a great New Testament scholar, which I hope is on the screen. Is there a quote on the screen? There we are. She exists to his honor as the one who, having come from man, is the one companion suitable to him so that he might be complete and that together they might form humanity? Can you see that that's got nothing to do with power politics? It has to do with the fulfillment of relationship. It's a beautiful thing. A church with ordered marriages where husbands behave like men and wives behave like women, conscious of the watching world, Is a beautiful thing. Look at um, let's look at that verse now. Where is it? Verse ten. I was hoping you were were going to forget about it, but actually, it's it needs to be dealt with. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. What is he talking about there? Commentators, lots of PhDs have been written about that verse. Um, There are three options. Are you ready? It could be that those angels are like the same angels in Genesis chapter 6 who lusted after the daughters of men and had sexual relations with them, which gave rise to the strange race of giants called the Nephilim. Never heard of it? Don't worry about it. (laughs) Genesis 6. Go and read it on your own time. Um, Most commentators don't go with that. But it could be that actually what Paul is saying according to these commentators, is cover your heads so that the angels don't lust after your woman. Okay? And Genesis 6, well, you've got to go and grapple. We won't deal with that today. We've got enough on our plates here. It could be that um, he's talking about the word for angel in the Greek can also be the word messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean a heavenly being. It could just be a messenger. And it could be some commentators speculate that perhaps the church at Corinth was being infiltrated by informers. So those are the angels. So keep the order so that the informers don't tell on you. That's an option. But here I think is the one that makes the most sense. It's the fact that the angels, the heavenly beings, are with us when we gather in worship. There is a spiritual realm that we can't see, that the Bible is unembarrassed about, speaking about. There is a spiritual realm which is inhabited by spiritual beings who are invisible, and there is a sense in which when we gather around the word of Christ to sing his praises, to hear his word, that the angels are present with us, the spiritual realm is present with us. And so, that seems to me to be the most likely explanation. But I want you to notice verse 11 and 12 as well, which is a wonderful verse of equivalence, because it has to do with the interdependence between men and women. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of women. And so he emphasizes again, will you notice, that when we gather, we don't do so as individuals, having our own private moment with God in church. We gather relationally. The relational dimension uh, is evident between a husband and a wife. They are interdependent on each other. We are interdependent on one another. And so we don't come to church as individuals, but we come in relationship with others in community. Here's the third and final thing, and I'll be quick with this. Order because of headship, order because of image, order because of nature. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for long hair is given to her as a covering. <coughs> so display right order in the gathered church because of common sense, because of nature. Judge for yourself. Take note of nature. You will see that it is, it is proper for a distinction to be made between men and women. Our culture's turned that on its head, hasn't it, recently? That there is no distinction between a man and a woman. That they kind of just flow one into the other. That's not God's way of thinking. He has made that distinction, that differentiation, not because one is inferior to the other, but because that's how it works best with order and structure. As Christianity grew, many women were converted because they found a community where they were treated as equals, the Christian church. In Greco-Roman culture, they were second-class citizens. But in the church, they were equal. They were treated as equal. They were unmolested. They were not seen as sexual objects. They were protected. Uh, They were valued. Their gifts were encouraged. They were uh, exercised leadership, like praying and prophesying, whatever prophesying means. You've got to wait for chapter 14 for that. They were given responsibility. They were honored. They were treated well. Paul wants to make sure that although it is true that in church there is neither slave nor free or male nor female, Galatians, that nevertheless the distinctions created by God and embedded in nature are not overturned or flattened out. The society in which we live, of course, calls the differentiation between gender violence and bigotry. Paul says, preserve the wonderful differentiation. It's that which brings honor to God, and by the way, honor to men and women. And if you want to be contentious about it, verse 16, we have no other practice in the churches. This is how it's done. Well, let me conclude. Thank you for not leaving. It's a difficult passage. And uh, I haven't answered all the questions. I'm sure there's more to be said. I said at the beginning that Paul wants the gatherings of the church in Corinth to be distinctive from the world. He wants these new Christians to be Christian and not to bring the paganism of Greco-Roman world into the gatherings with them. How are we in danger of bringing the paganism of Stellenbosch into church when we gather? So it's an important question there to think about because that's really the application of this chapter. And I hope that the growth groups will pick up on that this week when you meet to talk a little bit more about that. I can't, I can't unpack that uh, fully this morning, but I do want to mention one major way that I think we can be pagan when we, mather, when we, when we uh, gather. When we come to church on our own terms, as individuals... Wanting to be served. When we view church as a service provider, I think we are being pagan. When we are consumers at church, when you are more concerned about yourself, your own gifts, you want to be noticed or score points. When you're more concerned about your own name and reputation and status, wanting to be affirmed in your individualism rather than recognizing that we have relational responsibility when we gather. Then we are being pagan. For individualism is the paganism of Stellenbosch. More to be said about that. And so go to your growth groups this week and um, have a discussion about that. But I want to end by speaking to you if you are not a Christian this morning. First of all, We're thrilled that you're here. You are very, very welcome. You have heard this morning how church is meant to be. And I am sorry if your experience has been different to this, this ideal. The church, with all of its faults, is meant to be attractive, and yet often it's not. And for that I grieve, as do many. Chapters 11 to 14 are giving us an ideal to work towards, to strive towards. And we are striving. We don't get it right. We fail. You may have been disappointed by church and by Christians, but I want to say to you this morning that you'll never be disappointed by Jesus. And your life will remain disordered until you come to accept, verse 3, that Christ is the head of man. And we can expand that because obviously Christ is also the head of women. Christ is the head of everybody. And until he is your head, or at least your acknowledged head, he is your head whether you acknowledge it or not. But when you acknowledge it, order will come into your life. And many in this room can actually testify to that. That Before Christ came into my life, my life was chaos. It was disordered. My desires were disordered and wrong-headed. But Christ, when he came in, made the difference. He started to change me. He started to clean house. And so I want to say to you, if you are uh, an inquirer, an overhearer here this morning, don't you want to think about making Christ your head or acknowledging him as your head this morning, asking him to forgive you for living your life as though he wasn't your head and accepting him as your new head. Well, I think that's enough for one morning. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot in this passage to grapple with and to come to terms with. We're so grateful to you, though, that you have instructed us on uh, how to relate to one another, especially husbands and wives, in the Christian church gathered. And we pray that we would be a church that more and more reflects your ideal for how we are to behave with one another. Lord, forgive us when we are consumed by our own individualism without regard for others. We pray that you would help us to realize that we are part of a relational community when we gather and that we are to live in an other-person-centered way. Lord, help us to accept this teaching, though our culture rails against it. And I pray, Lord, also for those who might be here this morning who have not yet acknowledged you as their head and pray that you would be merciful to them and draw them into that relationship with yourself. And we pray these things for Christ our Savior's sake. Amen.